Are you tired of spandex cinema? Had enough of shitty remakes and reboots of movie classics? Real close to force choking an Ewok if they make another half-assed trilogy? Bored to tears by the latest original Netflix flop? Could give a flying fuck about another Fast and the Furious? Seriously, how many of those stupid fucking movies are they gonna make? And do I have good news for you when you listen to Watch This or Die podcast every week? You'll be recommended a movie that will grab you by the throat, punch you in the soul, set fire to your mind, and drop kick you into a whole new level of consciousness. Okay, maybe that's a bit extreme, but trust us, these are kick ass movies you need to see like your life depends on it. Because it does. So, what are you waiting for? Subscribe and listen now. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Watch This or Die podcast. We are thrilled that you've decided to join us. I'm Scott Crowshar. And I'm Michael Plant. And we will be your hosts on this cinematic journey. Now, each week we will be recommending a movie to you that we absolutely fucking love. And we think you will too. So for the next hour or so, we're going to do our best to convince you to go and watch this movie. Because your life might just depend on it. Now, without further ado, the movie we are recommending to you this week is Death Proof. He's got charm. Is there anybody in this place you could vouch for to give me a ride home? Fair lady, your chariot awaits. He's got style. Do I frighten you? This is my scar. It's your car. And he's got a set of wheels. Is it safe? Oh, it's better than safe. It's Death Proof. To Die For, from Quentin Tarantino, the director of Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Kill Bill, comes Death Proof. Uh, Mr. LaPlante, it is good to be talking to you as we are now embarking on a brand new journey, a little sidestep journey from our other journey. Are you excited for the very first episode of Watch This or Die? Yes, absolutely. I am thrilled. It's been a blast to do Nicolas Cage films. Um, but I am I'm ready to branch out and give us a little wing spreading. Yes, yeah, I know you're, you're the wind beneath my wings, but um, <laughs> you know I, I need something else to help uh, help lift us up into the stratosphere of cinema. Hopefully, every week we'll have something new and exciting for people to watch, so that they will actually go out and check out movies. But lo and behold, if you are a fan of our other podcast, nobody puts Nick in a cage. Have no fear; there will be some of those movies that we feel people need to watch that will make their way into this podcast as well. Just a little foreshadowing there. So this week we have chosen for you the amazing movie Death Proof that came out in two thousand seven. In case you were born under a rock, it was directed by the great Quentin Tarantino. For those of you who are just joining us for the very first time ever, don't know about us, we are huge Tarantino fans. Huge. So what better way to kick off a brand new podcast about film than with who we believe to be maybe the greatest auteur ever, especially of our time, but Mr. Quentin Tarantino. So Death Proof is what we picked. He directed it. He also wrote it. One of the great things about this movie is its amazing cast, and it stars Kurt Russell, Zoe Bell, Rosario Dawson, Vanessa Ferlito, Sidney Tamia Portier, 
Tracy Thomas, Rose McGowan, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, Eli Roth, Omar Doom, James Parks, and his father, Michael Parks. Some of you who are familiar with the Tarantino universe will know some of these people are returning and some of these people <laughs> are their first time ever. Now, the movie was shot on a budget of $30 million, and unfortunately, it only grossed $30.7. So it only made $700,000 above its original budget, which is maybe why some people don't know the movie. Yeah, I'm a little curious about that because uh, with it being, you know, the original release of this film being Grindhouse. Yes. Let me just take a look here quick. Well, Matt takes a look. For those of you who don't know, this movie, when it came out in 2007, was a part of a double feature called Grindhouse. It was with uh, Quentin Tarantino and his really good friend, Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez had a movie called Planet Terror. That movie went first. As that movie ended and then it went to the kind of intermission, there was a bunch of oh, great, great fake trailers, great, amazing fake trailers that were that popped up in between times. And then you got at the end, Death Proof by Quentin Tarantino. Now, since then, both of those movies can be found in and of their own volition. You don't have to watch them both together. And actually, I found it harder to find them both together now, like on iTunes, than I did uh, back in the day when you could find it on just VHS or on DVD. Yeah. So now you can watch each of them in and of their entirety. Now, I will say this also for those of you who have not seen Death Proof. Death Proof, the original film, has some scenes in it that were, that were cut and made it to the version that is now on iTunes. So I believe it enhances it. It was something that uh, you could get in the special edition version of it back in the day, uh, but now it is actually part of the film. So the film is different. So if you do get to watch it in its grindhouse entirety and then watch it in its uh, solo version, you will definitely see that it is a different movie and a longer movie in the solo version. Yeah, so while you were uh, going through the, the breakdown, of uh, the release of this. So I looked it up. So when Death Proof was, was released as Grindhouse, the budget for the total film was $67 million, and it grossed cumulatively worldwide uh, $25 million. So I'm assuming that this was from possibly independent releases of just Death Proof by itself, since the, the numbers don't make, uh, add up. Sons of bitches on IMDb have lied to us. We will find yeah. them, and we will... They will be dealt with. Who knows if maybe it did get an independent like circuit that we just didn't get here in the U.S. Maybe. This is a possibility. Speaking of IMDb, the ratings for this movie are, I, I'm going to say, a little bit surprisingly low on, on Rotten yeah. Tomatoes. But on IMDb, it is a 7 currently. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 64 for critics and a 72 audience score. So it's not, not a dud, but it's not as high as some of his other movies. And we will have some reasons for that as we get going. Now, the plot of this movie is pretty simple. Two separate sets of voluptuous women are stalked at different times by a scarred stuntman who uses his death-proof cars to execute his murderous plans in Quentin Tarantino's exploitation grindhouse thriller. That's a pretty good description as to what this movie really is. Oh, yeah. It is a full-on grindhouse exploitation movie. Hey, Pam! Remember when I said this car was death-proof? Well, that wasn't a lie. This car is 100% death-proof. Only to get the benefit of it, honey, you really need to be sitting in my seat. In Grindhouse, when they combine them, the... True homage to a grindhouse is Planet Terror, which is Robert Rodriguez's version. Death Proof is also a 
homage, but it really is its own thing. It Quentin Tarantino went out to make his own movie. He didn't try to make a, uh, you know, like later on when Rodriguez made Machete, he didn't try to keep making his B movies. He made his own yeah. very stylized type of B movie slasher flick. And instead of using a uh, knife or a weapon, the weapon of choice is these cars that are death proof. Yeah. It's like my, it's Michael Myers with a car. It absolutely is Michael Myers with a car, except this Michael Myers actually is able to speak and actually <laughs> speaks quite eloquently. And that is now going to lead us to the top five reasons we believe you should watch this movie. The top five reasons to watch this movie. Number one. It's a Quentin Tarantino movie. That should be all you need to know. Yeah. All of Tarantino's movies are events and are worth watching. They're worth going to see. Even this one, even yeah. though I think what hampered this over its course is that it came together as a grindhouse. Yeah. And that even back in 07, there were still some long epic movies out there, but not a lot of people had the stomach to sit around to watch two movies at one time. Even though you do that if you go to the drive-in theater. So, I don't know. But this movie is one of Tarantino's. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of film. Yeah. He was made to make this film. The the man has a better handle and knowledge of grindhouse and exploitation films and all genre from black exploitation to women's revenge films, which this heavily is influenced by, to just straight grindhouse style horror. He has the the largest. It's like a library of knowledge of films. He could probably name shit that the biggest cinemaphile wouldn't even fucking know what he's talking about. It's actually kind of funny. I kind of there. There's one little scene in there where um, stuntman Mike is having a conversation about all the films he stunted in, and I kind of took that as Tarantino making a stab at himself when he's just sitting there and he's listing off all these movies and all these actors that he doubled for. Then he looks back to the people he's talking to and they have no fucking clue who he's talking about. And I really much, I took that very, very much as like, this was Tarantino making fun of himself. If you've ever had a chance to listen to a pure cinema podcast that's put on by uh, the new Beverly cinema that Tarantino owns, um, he guests on there a few times and I've literally heard his employees that run his podcast and run his cinema, have him as a guest and he's naming off stuff and they're not talking for the entire podcast. And then they'll admit like seven minutes later that they've just been writing uh, titles and dates of films that he's just going through. Cause they have no fucking clue what he's talking about. Cause this guy is, he is the, the biggest brain filled with fucking cinema in it. I believe personally. Oh, his knowledge is it's it's beyond Wikipedia almost. It really yeah. it really is his own IMDB. It really is. And the thing that's uh, interesting about that is actually one of the shows that um Stuntman Mike played by the great Kurt Russell, he actually says a show that he was actually on. It was one of the show, one of the first shows Kurt Russell ever had the opportunity to be on. And it made it into, I think it was his first or second show that he talked about in that little speech while he's trying to explain to all these young people. Um, you know, the movies he's been in, who he's doubled for, and they just stare at him just like, yeah, just they, they no, like he, yeah, like he's speaking a different language. He really, yeah, that's exactly the look they give him is, is priceless. <laughs> it's like, yeah, not only that, 
Uh, but his what movie? Uh, what show was it that he was on? Uh, it was. Uh, I have to look it back up, but I think it was something like The Virginian or something else. One of the very first ones he talked about. Gunsmoke. No, no, it was an early. Um, it was a western show that uh, his character said he doubled for one of the leads, but in reality, Kurt Russell himself was a younger actor. He was actually in the show. Oh yeah, it is the Virginian. He was in two episodes of the Virginian. Yeah, so there you go. So he was actually in it. He played two different characters too. <laughs> oh god, that's fucking awesome. He played. Uh, he played one character in 1964. In 1965, he came back as a different fucking character. <laughs> hey, as as uh, those of you who have been a part of our uh, Nicolas Cage world, you'll know that Nicolas Cage brought back the same character <laughs> twice, 17 years later, and he died the first time. So yeah. anything is possible in cinema. Anything, yeah, <laughs> anything can happen. Now, the other thing about this movie with Quentin, about it being a Tarantino movie, is he knows so much about filmmaking that he goes above and beyond to create this as its own B movie from the fact that there are just, there's the, there's the audio pops from whenever a projectionist didn't put the proper tape back when you had to actually put together the films from reels, you had this tape and I actually had the opportunity to do it in the late nineties. You had to put each reel was brought in on cans. You run it out when the scene was supposed to be put together. There's this tape that's supposed to go over right over where you put the two splices together. If you don't put it on right, or over time, if it's you know, such the way you hear those, you used to hear those pops. Now you don't hear them because everything's digital. So those days are gone. But you would hear those pops. Um, he puts film scratches in because after a while, when the movie runs enough times, and if you know the projectionist doesn't give a shit, you can re- actually scratch the film, and you'll see scratches running through the film. There are not just that, but he goes ahead and actually in a scene, in one of the early scenes of the movie, when we come across the first set of our voluptuous uh, femme fatales, they are in a, um, a restaurant in Austin, Texas, and one of the characters, Jungle Julia, is, is talking, and the camera is actually pulling away from her. It's backing up on the dolly, and the dolly itself hits a table. You can hear it at the table. You can see the camera jump. And then you see a dolly back forward towards, and that's completely intentional. It only happens once, but he has all these moments where, from the editing, where like the film will will jump ahead and jump back. There'll be missing scenes in it. There'll be words and lips won't be synced together. He just does all these little moments, yeah, of absolutely, yeah, just putting it together in such a way. To even start with the old school intro titles and and, and the yep. music that he uses and the original title for this movie, those of you who see this, and one nice thing about seeing it now in the digital age, you have the ability to pause and go back, is when the title pops up, it's up for maybe a second, if you're lucky. Yeah, it's one frame. Yeah. And the original title is Thunderbolt and immediately cuts from it that being Thunderbolt to this almost filled in black. <laughs> Someone shot it on their on their tabletop and it just says death proof. Like it's completely yeah. goes against the aesthetic of the opening titles that they had just shown us. So Tarantino goes out of his fucking way in this movie. And especially I would say the first half. Did you notice the first half of this movie? And for those of you, this movie split into two. There are two groups. It's really two, two sections. Yeah, two movies. Two different films. Yeah, the first section is a bunch of girls that he that uh, stuntman Mike preys upon, and they are in Austin, Texas. When the second half of the film then jumps 14 months later, he is now basically stalking another bunch of girls who are in Lebanon, Tennessee, which is actually shot in uh, California, but it doubles as Tennessee, which yeah. those of you don't know is ten- is where um, Quentin Tarantino is actually from originally. He was a Tennessee boy. 
And just to show the amount of work that Tarantino put into this, this is the only film that Tarantino has been the director of photography on out of all of his entire uh, history. He's never been his own DP uh, for any of his films, except for Death Proof. Um, And that just kind of shows how much of a handle he has on this genre, where this film, cinematography-wise, would have not been in any better hands than his own, of him making the decisions of little things like doing the dolly back bump into a table little like he's seen so much grindhouse cinema that he knows every little air that's happened all the typical things from missing reels to audio just completely flaking out and even like the fact that um the scratchiness of the film he did by hand i know i did watch some special features a long time ago of the whole grindhouse segment. And I remember watching some of the stuff for planet terror, which I'm sure Robert Rodriguez, he did use some heavy CGI, especially to, to correct uh, some issues that they had with some extras that just weren't hitting their marks uh, correctly. So he would just like have their heads blown off um, during scenes um, just to make it look crazy. Tarantino scratched this film by hand to make it even more authentic, which would have been easy to just digitally scratch the film and add grain and all that shit to make it look uh, even more like a, a genuine grindhouse film to just go through that process of just damaging this film intentionally is fucking amazing. And just that I, I was blown away. Uh, now I'm God, this must be, I don't even know. I lost count of how many times I've seen this film that this was the first time I noticed that he's the DP on it. And then when I went to go look into it, I was like, I don't believe he's actually done that for his own films. Um, Cause he does have a couple of cinematographers that he's pretty um, attached heavily with. And he did this all himself. And it definitely shows when watching it, you, you really can tell once you know that it's him doing the cinematography work on this, you can really, really see that it is uh, it truly is him controlling the camera shots. He put such care into this whole movie, which is why it's surprising. Now, obviously, Quentin Tarantino has now put out nine films. You could rank them. We might do that at some point later, another foreshadow. But with that short of a catalog, however, with almost every single one of the movies that he's actually directed, always getting such great reviews and, and lauded upon, and people can't wait for the next one to come out, there's always going to be ones where you now have, you know, in the top nine, they have to be ranked. So I thought about it earlier today, like, You've had great teams in the world of sports where whether it's the Yankees from the you know 40s, 50s, and 60s or the Celtics of the 50s and 60s or the Montreal Canadiens, these teams where they would win multiple championships in a row. And there's always going to be a year in those championship wins where one team – they're going to have like that one team that's like that was their best team ever. However, if you think about it, they won like six, seven championships in a row. How can they not be the whole team's that great? You know what I mean? There's always going to be something that rises just a little bit to the top because it's going to be looked upon as being greater than some of its other part of the other parts. So where I think this movie unfortunately falls is because you have movies like Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Inglorious Bastards, and so on, where they get such lauded praise, and then this one kind of gets, I don't know, I feel like the short end of the stick, because this movie is much better than people give it credit for. It usually yeah. falls down in the bottom third of his cat of his catalog, yeah, which it's again, not dead last. No, and the funny thing is, is this movie's better than most people's, you know, best movies in, in some cases. Yeah. Oh, yeah, big time. Like, yeah, Tarantino's uh, 
not it's i it's it feels like sacrilege to call it his worst like so i don't even want to say those words out loud like I, i may be smited by the tarantino god but him proclaiming this as his worst film himself is still better than most directors a lot of directors fucking what you would consider the best film especially some directors that don't have very long careers that do like for example donnie darko that he came out he made a great debut and then what the fuck happened to him he made a second movie it was fucking shit and then he disappeared and not saying donnie darko isn't a bad film but still i would i would rate this higher than donnie darko Think about how many other movies are, I mean, this is its own slasher film without a slasher. I mean, right. he went out and, and grabbed some amazing actors and actresses, which we're about to get into, and he made a basically a sex he took every exploitation you can think of except for black exploitation. He took sex exploitation, he took the the slasher genre, he took the you said it earlier, uh the revenge flicks. He combined all of these. Oh, the women's revenge films. Yeah. Yeah. He combined all these great moments and these elements, and he made an amazing fucking movie. And the reason he shot it is because he knew what he wanted. He knew that he would have to do it this way. And I would say. Exactly. That this is his greatest movie he's ever made in the sense of a movie. From pure film aesthetic ability, he was able to capture what was done unintentionally back in the day make it intentional make it work because of his love of these of these movies and his genres and make it one of the best you know genre pieces you've ever seen uh we talk about a movie in uh, our other podcast called drive angry which is a car infused uh nick cage is a whole different character running around killing people and that's a b movie and i think it knows it's a b movie yeah and it, it plays it has fun with it a lot of the b movies in the day didn't know they were b movies they weren't trying to be b movies no. they just they just took the money they had and they used the budget for what they could and then they just became a b movie he went out and made what would be considered a b movie but he made an A movie of a B movie, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like yeah, absolutely, the absolutely. casting, the acting, everything in this is spot on. There's there's not a false step, even though he puts in intentional false steps. Yeah. He had such precision and care where to make a regular film, you have your blueprint and you're going to go with it. But to go ahead and make a film based on a genre and you're going to add in all these other things takes another level of genius and, and ability to do that no one else has and nothing against Rodriguez. I love him. He did a great job of making an homage, but this man made a great, did a great job of making an original film film. based on all these things and knocked it out of the park. Yeah. It's an homage in the sense of that it's Tarantino's gift back to the cinema that he loves. And yeah, it's not like Robert Rodriguez where he is making it intentionally to be that B movie grindhouse film play towards you know the italian uh, zombie films and the action movies of the era of grindhouse uh cinema well he as i said and as we both pretty much covered he absolutely kills it and for this for that alone if you're a film fanatic and some of you who are listening might not be but if you are one of those who is film fanatic or tarantino fan and you haven't seen this movie, or maybe you saw it and you've seen some of his others since then, which he has had some pretty good ones since the 07, this 07 debut, you have to go back and give it another look. And I promise you, you're going to re-see it, especially if you've seen um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, he's basically doing a, you know his love letter to Hollywood 
this is an actual love letter to Hollywood. This this movie itself yeah. it is the actual movie. He made what he grew up on in the flesh. And if you haven't seen it, this one reason alone, I feel, is why you should see it. Like we could we could end it right now and just give you this one. You should see it based on that. But we won't end it one because we're going to go to two, which is another thing that he is known for. Although I think everyone forgets that this movie, he does it bigger than anyone else has. Number two. It stars a cast of strong female characters. That is our number two reason, is it has a cast of strong female characters. And there's two sets of them. We just fucking met each other. I mean, if you don't bust their balls a little bit, they're never going to respect you. Okay, we're pretty clear on what it is you didn't do. How about enlightening us on what it is you did do? Nothing to write home about. We just made out on the couch for about 20 minutes. Dressed, half-dressed, or naked? Dressed. They said we made out. We didn't do the thing. <gasps> Excuse me for living, but what is the thing? You know, it's everything but. They call it the thing? I call it the thing. Do you guys like the thing? They like it better than no thing. <laughs> <laughs> I had a set crush on Cecil. Set crush, nigga, please. You were his set wife. <laughs> were and had, being the key words here. <laughs> Bitch, you two are still into each other and you know it. Yeah, well, if he's so in love with me, then why did he fuck Daryl Hannah Standen? <laughs> <laughs> yes, men are dogs. Oh, it's so funny. Oh, it's so funny. Oh, stop acting all hurt. Your ass just mad. Yeah, he's a stand-in fucker. <laughs> Bitch, you need to get over that shit. That was two weeks ago. Like we said, in the first half of the movie, he preys upon these women in Austin, Texas, led by Sidney Portier's daughter who is also yeah. named Sydney. <laughs> Surprisingly has not done much since then. No. I know she, and she's, and she's fantastic in this. in this movie. Oh yeah. my god. So she plays good. Jungle Julia who is a local DJ in um Austin, Texas and the other two girls who are with her, they obviously are good friends from a long time ago, and she's the one who's kind of made it. So they're there to celebrate yeah. and have fun or whatever for her uh, birthday. Look. You don't have to do it for anybody you don't want. I said you do it for the first guy who says it. So, some geek comes over trying to be cool, just tell him you already did it at another place earlier. No harm, no foul, but you get a free drink out of it. But maybe a little later in the evening, you've had a few drinks, you're kind of loosey-goosey, you're safe with your girls, then some kind of cute, kind of hot, kind of sexy, hysterically funny, but not funny-looking guy comes up and says it. Then maybe you did it earlier. Maybe you didn't. Unfortunately, they catch the eye of Mr. Stuntman Mike. You know, things don't go so hot for them. But the movie stars nothing but women. Yeah. True, Kurt Russell is the top bill because he's the only character who makes it from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. He's our He is our stalker. He's our Jason. is the only person that keeps the whole thread of both movies together. However... The movies are run by two sets of strong women. And in the first half, uh, Sidney Poitier. And then in the second half, it's a toss-up. It's Zoe Bell. It's Rosario Dawson. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's a couple of those girls. Uh, Tracy Thomas, who is amazing. Yeah. Um, again, some of these women haven't done a whole lot after. I mean, obviously. Rosario Dawson. and Mary Elizabeth. And Rosario has. But yeah. to me, the two women, the three women who stood up the most to me and who have not done as much since then. And I'm surprised they haven't made it into another Tarantino film. Obviously, as we said, Sidney Poitier. The daughter, not the not the uh, the well the well esteemed um, Oscar winner or who's her father, <laughs> Vanessa Ferlito, who plays yeah. Butterfly in the first half, 
with Sydney. She's great. And then Tracy Thomas. And the best way for me to describe Tracy Thomas is imagine, those of you who are sports fans, imagine Stephen A. Smith from ESPN combining with Samuel L. Jackson and then it's a female. That's the best way I can describe Tracy Thomas's character in this movie. She, in that second half, man, she is a powerhouse of of yeah. spunk, no of badass, barred. of Just emotion. Like, yeah. Look, I don't know what futuristic utopia you live in, but the world I live in, a bitch need a gun. <laughs> you can't get around the fact that people who carry guns tend to get shot more than people who don't. And you can't get around the fact that if I go down to the laundry room in my building at midnight enough times, I might get my ass raped. Don't do your laundry at midnight. Fuck that. I want to do my laundry whenever the fuck I want to do my laundry. (laughs) There are other things you can carry other than a gun. Pepper spray. Uh, motherfucker try to rape me? I don't want to give him a skin rash. I want to shut that nigga down. (laughs) How about a knife, at least? Yeah. You know what happens to motherfuckers carry knives? They get shot. Look, if I ever become a famous actress, I won't carry a gun. I'll hire me a dude dirt nigga, and he'll carry the gun. And when shit goes down, I'll sit back and laugh. But until that day, it's Wild West motherfucker. Oh, man, she is fucking amazing. And the fact that those three women haven't been in other things or be more, you know, have been a better shot to fame is crazy. So if you're a fan of strong women characters, this is why you need to see this movie because these broads are badass. Yeah. E- even though some things happen to some of them and not the others, they are still very strong. And the great thing about yeah, yeah, all of them are. And they do a great job, especially in the first half. And they're all sexualized. So I don't want to pretend like it's not happening, but it's because of the genre they're going for. So it's not like the women were conned into doing this. They knew what was coming. There's a lot. If you know anything about Tarantino, yeah. there's some foot fetish. There's a lot of foot fetish. He shoots. Yeah. He does a lot of great <laughs> exploitation shots. Like our very first shot of Jungle Julia is her long legs wearing underwear walking through her apartment. She's, we mm-hmm. get a lot of shots of, of asses and lower sections and legs and feet. It is the setup, you know, obviously the whole just I mean, just like, you know, what gets set up in like, you know, a lot of your Friday the 13th. Because, you know, they always go to a lake house and there's always some yeah. girls having sex and she can't run. Yeah. But these women are not damsels in distress. Some things happen to them, but they're not damsels in distress by any means. They are strong women. And you get to see them deal with emotions from love and sexuality and all this other stuff. But not once do you ever, you know, they're not just like some bimbos on screen who are just there to to shake their ass and bounce their titties and then eventually fall down and be killed by a knife. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. You know, they are some tough, tough broads and they will not take shit from no. nobody. They'll, they'll take no shit. <laughs> and yeah, I, I want to touch on like the fucking dialogue, the female dialogue oh. between characters is so fucking good. It is Tarantino <sighs> doing dialogue between his, these strong female casts. In almost the sense of Reservoir Dogs. Oh, absolutely. You get a scene the table like the table. Yeah. They get two table scenes where, where both of them are pretty much their fem- a female version of a res- the Reservoir Dogs' famous coffee uh, tipping scene. This is a very, very dialogue-heavy film. And it's great. Like, every moment of it. Like, I, I literally, I could spend more time with every, all these female characters just listening to them mm-hmm. banter. It's so realistic, and, like, the, it, it's just and perfectly delivered by every single one of these actresses. Not a single one of them is out of place. No. They all fall in perfectly. It is, 
insane for them to just come in and even Rose McGowan. Yeah. You know, cause she's at the bar and she eventually falls slides in, but even her character being an outcast from high school of the Sydney Portier's character of jungle Julia. And even how that kind of yeah. leads itself on. Yeah. And as it, as it evolves, it starts with this very bitterness. And then you can see as a couple of drinks settled in, in the bar and now she's uh, been around Mr. Song Man Mike, who he's the coolest man in the bar next to goddamn Quentin Tarantino playing the barkeep. Uh, in the, I would fuck go to that bar every day if Tarantino ran a bar anywhere. He just <laughs> seemed awesome. like the fucking the motherfucking coolest bartender in the world. I don't know who ever comes over and brings over a liqueur for you to drink. Uh, instead of an actual liquor, Ch- chartreuse. It was, so, it was good. so good. They named, they a named color a after that motherfucker. Color after it. Is that a tasty beverage or is that a tasty beverage? What the fuck is it? Chartreuse. The only liquor so good they named a color after it. <laughs> uh, who wants dosage chartreuse? Oh my god, he's so he's good. So goodness. But as you see the progression of like almost like she now has realized that. These people that she has idolized and vent and vengeance against this jungle Julia character, who obviously her the death of reason for her anger towards the kind of the whole group is just based off of this previous high school relationship that they had. But as she realizes that she is now um, hanging out with the cool guy that has initiated contact across the entire bar with everybody and with the help of Mr. Tarantino vouching for him as Oh, he's Stuntman Mike. Hey, Warren. Who is this guy? Stuntman Mike. And who the hell is Stuntman Mike? He's Stuntman. Is now she's kind of, like, playing it cool back to them. Like, it's almost like there was something that we didn't see where they almost made amends. Which it might be part of, might be part of the, you know, you lose, you know, you lose a scene in the show, yeah. Uh, the, the cuts, yeah. Well, what's, what's great about what you're saying is what he does with this dialogue and these characters and how great he wrote for these characters is a lot of times in movies, there's exposition or these, these long drawn out, we have to get to know characters. We get to know right away from both sets of friends. We literally get to know this first group for an hour and then something happens to them. And now we can start with a second group. And each time you feel for each group, because his writing does such a great job of having to get rid of exposition through their banter, through their conversations, we learn instantly that they are friends or this and that's happened. And we don't have to get this whole big like flashback or montage of them being friends or all this other stuff. We know just by one, the chemistry that these ladies have with each other on film, first off, is fantastic. Like there's not a moment in this that I didn't think that uh, Tracy Thomas's character and Zoe Bell haven't been friends for fucking decades. Yeah. Like if they if they were to ever get married, one of them is going to be the other's uh maid of yeah. honor. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no doubt in oh, my yeah. They're best mind. friends. For, yeah. yeah. They have this uh and, it, and it's funny, it kind it kind of get, it gets subtly acknowledged by Rosalia Dawson who says how the two of them kind of <laughs> cut everybody else out of the equation when they're all around but just when it's the two of them around in the group. If one of them is not there, it's a different dynamic. Yeah, oh absolutely. Um, cuz it is. It's that best friend mode. It's uh it's that best friend mode where, you know, you throw in those two best friends, they're going to act differently when the two of them are together yeah. than when they're separated. It, it, they're all good friends and they each so but like I feel like uh Tracy's character She's the middle friend, right? She's the one that keeps the other two to glue together because clearly uh, in the movie, Zoe's character just comes over and she basically plays herself in a way. Yeah. 
She comes over because she is her name is Zoe. She comes over to America from New Zealand for the first time to work on a movie. And most of the time they've worked on them overseas with her. But when she comes over, now they're all together. But when they're not there, Tracy and obviously uh, Rosario Dawson's character are usually on movies together and they're great friends. And they may have been friends from before. But I think it's because of the job that both Tracy and Zoe's characters do as stunt women that puts that just kind of gelled them close together. So they're all great friends, but you could tell that if, if she had to pick which friend she was better friends with her and Zoe are the best of friends. Although all three of them are like the three musketeers, but there's always going to be some one that the other one likes more than the other. And they just have a different chemistry because of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I just want, I want to touch on one more thing with the both uh, the two sets of female characters. I feel are both sets of homages to two things Tarantino loves. One, radio, and two, cinema. So these yep. are all actresses, production members, stunt crew. And then the other one being led by Jungle Julia, who is this great radio personality that has this very eclectic, rare sense of music. You know, the pick, the choices of music that she chooses are things that nobody's ever heard of from uh, Dave Deakey, uh, Bobby Mitchell Titch. I fucking get that right? Because yeah. if I did, I'm but I'll really this, impressed. I do have one bone to pick with what she says when she talks because a girl... Oh, because you're, you're pissed about the who? Yeah, because... Look, <laughs> I, look I like the, the whole thing, but Pete Townsend and the who are far better than Dicky, Mickey, Titchy, Bitchy, Litchy, whatever it was. There's no fucking way <laughs> that Pete Townsend would have been better off in that band than he was in the who. However, I can appreciate Tarantino's wanting to put that in, and maybe that's how he felt. I can totally appreciate that, but yes. I was sitting there listening the other day, and I was like, nah, nah. Pete Townsend belongs in the fucking <laughs> who, all right? So... That's the one thing Tarantino, Tarantino and I disagree on in that respect. It's it's funny because you know that 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 specific song must have rang with him so hard that he found this fact out that if that who fell through, uh, Pete would have went there, and it stuck with him, and he waited to be able to deliver that, that one line while playing that song. Because <laughs> yeah, you can tell it's totally his personal opinion thrown in there, and it's it's fucking great. Well, what I think it also does is being that it's Sydney Portier again. Every time I say that, it's her actual name. I think that's maybe why she goes by her with her middle name in there of Tamia. Yeah, but she is and the confusion. She's a a lighter skinned black woman in Austin, Texas, and she is pulling out you know rock and roll songs that would you know. I think it's the whole combination of how she looks. And then what she's talking about that would throw that throws that would throw a viewer off because you wouldn't expect that you know a black woman in Austin, Texas, or a black woman would be bringing up a band about the who. You know what I mean? Like what I love about it is it completely flips your assumptions on their fucking head. You think, oh, Jungle Julia, so she must be the hip hop R and B rap person. That's what that's her claim to be. Yeah, like soul and you're music. Like, nope, not at all. She is almost like the most eclectic. She's almost as eclectic in her music taste as that jukebox that is actually Quentin Tarantino's that's in the movie. And yeah. so what I love about it is it throws he takes all these little tropes that you think are gonna happen, right? It would almost be like if you're in Star Trek and every time you wear the red shirt, that person dies. Well, if the person in the red shirt actually was the fucking hero, mm-hmm. that's what he does to this. You know what I mean? He flips it on its head. Oh, women in this movie, they're going to be sexualized and the men are going to have to save them and they can't fend for themselves. Wrong. Oh, the tall black woman yeah. who's a DJ in Austin, she must be on this set of radio stations because that's what we already preconceive in our mind that's going to be. Wrong. She's not. Like, every time yeah. you think, 
you know, you think this is going to happen wrong. You know, like, oh, these girls need these guys wrong. You know, every time you have yep. a think in your mind that you think, you know, he makes sure you go, nope, that's not how this is going to fucking go, pal. And it's great, yeah. you know, especially in the second half of the movie where Stuntman Mike fucks with these ladies. And that's something we'll get into a little bit. And you think, oh, shit, you know, they're going to just be scared. And then what can they do? How are they going to help themselves Stuntman Mike? And then they flip the script on him. And you're like, holy shit. So there's a, that's what makes this movie great is he when he writes a strong female character, he is not afraid to take them all the way to the fucking promised land. And really yeah. give you a strong female character, you know, and not just one, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, well, it was the, you know, the bride and kill bill. Well, he takes the bride and fucking makes, you know, makes clones of her in this movie and makes a ton of strong female characters. Hell, when Kurt Russell's not on the screen, half the time, the other guys are just are just like fucking scenery. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's almost like they've turned them yeah. into the doting, you know, normally male dominated movies. They, they took them into the doting girls as in completely different and. I love it. It just it completely spins it on its head, and uh, it just there's so many great things about yeah. how he did that. Which, which again is is another great thing because like when he's trying to make uh, his own version of this slasher grindhouse film, women's revenge film, he makes these women so strong and their characters so strong. But then he does he keeps the men just like they would be in Friday Thirteenth. They are driven by sex and alcohol. They are fucking stupid. They don't know how to fucking talk. They make jokes about random people and are dickheads for no fucking reason. And that that's it. Like literally, um, Omar and Eli Roth are the <laughs> two biggest fucking douchebags in the bar. And it's intentional. It's like they are you, you if they were in a different horror movie, they would be the first to die. <laughs> they would get killed immediately. They fall right into that fucking category. They are the two slightly, they weren't jocks, but now like they have that jock cocky attitude. Oh yeah. They're the cock of the wood in the area. Yeah, they really are. And that's what I love about it is that he didn't make them into these different characters while he took or he focused on taking what they would call like in, in horse cinema, his final girls um, and making the final girls, both sets of, them these strong characters that carry throughout the movie and drive the movie through it and they're just background <laughs> they really are they're just they're background in like comic relief you <laughs> like i the, how pathetic <laughs> some of them are omar especially <laughs> um and eli roth fantastic at playing him playing i almost imagine just <laughs> another version of himself yeah, right Funny thing is he flew all the way back for a day from Germany from fil filming Hostel 2 to film this and then flew back to finish Hostel. He is, oh, oh, my God. Yeah, like just when he <laughs> fucking makes the joke about Kurt, he's like, what? <laughs> like a BJ and the Bear. Cut, <laughs> he comes up on yeah, BJ and the Bear. He's like, yo, he cut his fucking face falling out of his fucking time machine. Oh, oh my God, it's so, so good. good. Dude fucking cut himself falling out of his time machine. <laughs> Can I get a chicken soup for stroke race, please? <laughs> like, how many times have you been in a bar with a friend that's that guy that, that makes that joke about the random fucking dude sitting at the bar that it's like, come on, do you need to fucking pick on this fucking dude? What the fuck's the need, read yeah. need for it? But he does yeah. it. It's real. It's realistic, and it's fucking, yeah, great. It's, <laughs> he he, do, he totally flip, he flips the script. Like, he really does. He, he takes it so, like, you know, every... In every horror film, you have that at least one 
macho male that's going to make it to the end. At least um, he's probably either going to die as a, a sacrifice to save somebody else or survive. And he takes his male characters and is just like, no, they are just fucking walking boners. They, that's all they give a fuck about is they're trying to get with these girls with the exception of Kurt Russell uh, being the, the villain of this film. Every background male character is literally just a dumb fucking idiot. Well, the funny thing about that is mostly the background characters are only in the first half. And this is where if you're mm-hmm. a fan of Tarantino, you know, he always likes to combine some things. And sometimes it's just happenstance. In the 2000s, he made three movies. He made Kill Bill which even though it had volume one, volume two, he considers it one movie. He made Kill Bill, he made Death Proof, and he made Inglorious Bastards. Three movies in that decade. Great thing about Death Proof is it combines the, the bookends of the other two movies in one movie. Eli Roth, Omar, and I forget the other gentleman's name, the three boys who are in the first half of this movie end up being part of the Inglorious Bastards. They are three of the Inglorious Bastards in the movie Inglorious Bastards, which would be filmed two years later for his uh, third movie of that decade. When we start the second half of the movie with Rosario Dawson, uh, Tracy owns a – she owns the original Eleanor, so to speak. Oh, the GT. The GT. Yeah, Shelby 500. Yeah, which is painted like the pussy wagon in Kale Bill. And in fact, on the yep. back, you see later, there's <laughs> a sticker that says Little Pussy Wagon. And when a phone rings in the same exact scene for Rosario Dawson, she has the ringtone of the song that we hear – played as L driver walks through the hospital to originally try to poison the bride before Bill stops her. So he combines the two movies that he doesn't realize he's combining in this middle one. And I just thought it was great because you're sitting there watching. I'm like, I mean, I obviously knew Eli Roth. He plays um, the bear Jew, but the other two, I was like, Oh my God, those are the other two guys. Mm-hmm. They're, they're also part of the inglorious bastards. He does a great job of uh, combining even. Yeah. Even him and him and Omar, the him and uh, Eli Roth uh, being the bear Jew, they're, they're the two that go and actually they're the two that fucking riddle Hitler, Hitler with fucking yeah, bullets. Margarete. Um, <laughs> yeah, Margarete. Margarete. Antonio Margarete. Ancora? Margarete. Un'altra volta, ma adesso vorrei proprio sentire la musica delle parole. Margarete. Oh, God, so fucking good. And then while while you're talking about uh, music involving cell phones, uh, let's just hit on uh, his very, very subtle homage to his favorite Brian De Palma film with the use of theme music from Blowout being the music that plays when Miss Jungle Julia is texting her... Yeah, Chris something, yeah. The director that... Chris something. The director that she cares about that is does not care about her as much as she cares about him. And it soundtracked so fucking perfectly with the theme music from Blowout, which is a fantastic film. We'll get to that, I'm sure, at some point. There's another hint towards later. <laughs> much <laughs> foreshadowing. Yeah. Nobody will catch that that little homage. So, again, it's another thing that you know Tarantino put in there to just hide it for people that would catch it and for himself himself doing this. It's almost like as like, you know, as much as once upon a time in Hollywood is him again, like you said, paying his respects to the golden age of cinema. This is him paying his respects to grindhouse and to just like other uh, directors that he loves by making this film. And especially with, you know, having so much control being the writer, director and DP on this, and a producer, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, 
it's the most he's been attached, I believe, to any film. Yeah, it's Quentin Tarantino. If you don't know, rewind back to part one, the first one. <laughs> exactly. That will lead us to our third reason you should watch this movie. Number three. It's Kurt fucking Russell playing a villain. He plays so few villains, if many at all. But Kurt fucking Russell as stuntman Mike is absolutely amazing. And let me just say, anytime Kurt Russell has his hair in an almost, I want to say, mullet, an almost 70s mullet, his character is going to be awesome. All right? He is going to be the fucking best in it. Actually, I think he's his best when he has that hair. Yeah, it's like the the slick back mullet. You know how people say, you're okay in my book, or... And my book, that's no good. Well, I actually have a book. And everybody I ever meet goes in this book. And now I've met you, and you're going in the book. (laughs) Except I'm afraid I must file you under chicken shit. He plays this role with such, uh, such joy, such fucking yeah. joy. He can go and he's able to turn on a dime from being, you know, uh, in, in, amused by what's going on to the fourth wall break that he does when he looks at us when he knows shit's about to go bad and very much tells the audience that shit's about to go bad with his coy little smile to when he does hear people picking on him and he does that turn and we see his scar in his eye and he looks back at us with that eye and you can just see the evil in it to even the unexpected yeah. bitch turn that he has at the end of the movie when things don't oh, go God, his it's way. so fucking oh, good it's funny but he does it so well he is he does so it, yeah. fantastic in this movie oh and you know, and I'm glad that he was the villain. There's other villain people they they had talked about. Um, I don't know the actor's name, yeah. but an Australian actor who was in a great movie named Wolf Creek that may or may not yeah. make it on this podcast at some point. Yeah, John uh, John Jurat. Yeah, uh, from Wolf Creek was considered for and along with him, Ving Rhames, uh, Sylvester Stallone, and Mickey Rourke um, were all considered for stuntman Mike. And all of them were wrong for the part. All of them. No. This is 100% Kurt's fucking role. One of his best. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you get to know Kurt Russell enough times, and you've seen him in a couple of other Tarantino movies, he plays some great characters. He's great in Westerns. He's great as Snake Plissken. He's got all these different roles, but in this, he really hits range. He really hits so many great different moments. The funny thing is, is it's almost as if... So there's a couple of scenes where he's like watching these girls, and he's always staring them down. And... They do some things that he finds funny from a distance, and he even laughs. Like he's not just like this total. Yeah, he he's not a total creeper, yeah. but you know he's got these moments. I mean, obviously he's a creeper, but you know most your your idea of what a yeah. creep is someone who's just like always lurking in the bushes. You know what I mean? And at any moment's gonna no, jump out. Yeah. And he's not like that, but and he's got a foot he's, fetish. Yeah, like taking the taking taking these photos, and he's giddy and uh, laughing at them. He thinks that he has this 100% control of the situation, just like the way that he is a stuntman. He feels like it's all, you know, just like stunts are. It's organized, it's handled, it's managed. As long as you do it right, everything should go good. And that's how I feel like he kind of handles his reign of mayhem against anybody that gets in his path or that he chooses 
And when it doesn't go his way, <laughs> it is not good for him <laughs> at all. Well, you know, the reason is you, you got to think that he's been doing this for a very long time. This is like the two instances we come upon, they, they are not his first two tries. You know what I mean? Absolutely. This is not the first time he's he's do, uh, used some vehicular manslaughter, so to speak, uh, to chase down women. I think at the end of the movie, it's the first time that it hasn't gone the way he expected it. Exactly. To go. And <laughs> what a change it is. Oh, what a change it is. Yeah. But I think my favorite moment is when we start the second half of the movie, and it's not in the original Grindhouse version of Death Proof. He sees Rosario Dawson, her feet are hanging out the window. She has no shoes on, and it's just her toes. And Mary Elizabeth Weinstein is sitting in the front seat. She's singing completely oblivious, and he sneaks up behind the car. And he like licks his fingers. And what he first does, he tosses his <laughs> he tosses his keys in front of the car. And he licks his fingers and touches her toes. And he walks by. He goes, "Where the hell are those keys? Ah, Jesus Christ! Here they are!" He like picks them up and goes over to his car, like totally playing off. And he just touched a woman's toes that he licked his finger and stuff like that. And I just loved that whole like the play. Where the hell are my keys? And yeah, where the hell are my keys? Oh, here they are. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to give you a concert there. <laughs> no, that wasn't you. That guy bumped into my feet when he walked by. I don't know why, but that kind of creeped me out. But he's got such great little tiny moments, you know? When he gets bad, when he turns, when he's sitting in the car, and he gives his whole death-proof uh, talk of the car yeah. to Pam, who's played by Rose McGowan. Is it safe? No, it's better than safe. It's death-proof. How do you make a car death-proof? Well, that's what stuntmen do. You've seen a movie where car gets into some smash-up, there ain't no way in hell anybody's walking away from. Yeah. Well, how do you think they accomplished that? CGI? <laughs> well, unfortunately, Pam, nowadays, more often than not, you're right. But back in the all-or-nothing days, vanishing point days, the dirty Mary Crazy Larry days, the white line fever days, real cars smashing into real cars, real dumb people driving them. So... Give the stunt team the car you want to smash up, take her and reinforce that fucker everywhere, and voila, you got yourself a death-proof automobile. That is such a phenomenal scene. Did you know the title for death-proof came from a conversation that Tarantino was having with Sean Penn? They were talking about buying a car, and he asked Sean Penn, you know, if this car's safe. And then he goes, well, why don't you just get one of the stunt guys to death-proof it? And then it kind of caught him by surprise. Like, well, what do you mean? And then Sean Penn went ahead and probably did a very similar job of what he does in the movie with stuntmen, like explaining uh, to Pam what death-proof means. And it was from that moment that really started this movie. This is how he got to this movie from that death-proof. He wanted to be like, really think about what that meant and how he could parlay that into a movie down the road and this is what we got from it. That's fucking awesome. That little the bit of background. Because uh, <laughs> the Thunderbolt, it being originally titled that, I just want to hit on one more uh, <laughs> subtle thing from Kurt Russell is I'd almost call it like a, a serial killer tick. And he has it happen to him uh, when he is having a discussion with uh, Jungle Julia outside. All of a sudden, it's almost like he has a sneeze coming that he's trying to get out, but he can't control and he even knows that this is like you can tell in the way he handles it that this is something that happens to him from being this fucking evil fuck when he's getting his rocks off as uh the sheriff would say <laughs> when he's uh getting his rocks off uh because it's the only way he can do it <laughs> as the sheriff would say he has this tick 
that uh, he can't control when it happens. And that tick happens. And it's so fucking good. It's so awkward to fucking watch. And you feel like you're literally sitting side by side with these girls as they're watching this fucking weirdo just like grab, clutch his nose and tilt his fucking head back and act like he's about to fucking sneeze yet have like a fucking orgasm at the same fucking time. And it's so fucking weird but perfect to fit like the bill of you're trying to check all these boxes for this guy being this psycho fucking killer. And there you go. You gave him his tick. The, you know, it's just kind of like, uh, I forgot what fucking movie it is where, uh, oh, uh, Taking Lives in the film Taking Lives, how the character, the killer, touches his ear after murdering somebody. It's, it's his tick. It's like, it, and it, it's done just so subtly. And really, I think that's the only scene that we really see it in. I think maybe in the car he does it. It is. Um, but that's it. Yeah. And it's just done so, so subtly and so perfectly by Kurt, Kurt Russell. that it, it does. It, literally, when watching it, I, I felt like I was sitting next to him. I was like, fuck. If I was there, I'd be like, I'd probably stand up and be like, what the fuck's wrong with you? What are you fucking doing, sir? What the fuck's going on? Can you please get the fuck away from us? <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, I mean, he eventually, uh, uh, you know, obviously approaches him again for that whole little get that lap dance scene, yeah. which is fantastic. So good. But did you know that when the events and we're going to do everything we can not to spoil this for you with the events that happen at the end of the first half of the movie there was a scene and earl mcgraw who is played by michael parks who we'll get into in a second in that he tells his son about you know he thinks that's how he gets his rocks off Mm -hmm. the only way he can uh he can ejaculate and get off is by doing what he does to women there was an actual scene that at the end of the climax of the first half that we actually that he was actually in the car jerking off at the end, um, but they cut it. And it didn't, mm. it didn't make a special feature or anything like that, but that was actually a possible scene that was almost in the movie. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about Kurt Russell, here's the greatness about Tarantino. And I just thought about this sitting here talking while you're listening to you. Kurt Russell is in the, was in like about 85% of the first half of the movie. We get to learn about who Kurt Russell is by every little interaction, his looks, and what he ends up doing. In the second half, he is like the shark in Jaws. He only pops up. We always, like we see him, like he's sitting at the table that one time. Like you can see him as we're doing that table scene. He only is around. He's kind of like that presence that's coming. We know he's eventually going to come. We just don't know when. And we just kind of see the fin every now and again until he finally does strike. In the second half of the movie, he's not in as much until almost the climax. But he's in a few times like that fin in the water of the shark. And then he goes underwater and we don't see him for a while. And then all of a sudden, boom. He's there, and we get that climax at the end. So great job by Tarantino to, one, build you up a character, lead you all about him, and then he kind of starts off the beginning of the first half, and then we dis- he disappears, and we forget about him. And yet, know in the back of our mind, he's out there lurking, and he's going to make his appearance again. Yeah. We just don't know when and, and how. Just we'll touch on a part of it with our Kurt Russell is anyone who knows who Earl McGraw is. Earl McGraw is played by oh, yeah. the great Michael Parks, who is who has passed recently. Amazing character actor in Tarantino's world. He first made his appearance in a movie that Tarantino wrote and may be a part of a podcast one day, which was directed by Robert Rodriguez, called From Dust Till Dawn. In that movie, he plays a Texas Ranger. I won't let you know what happens in that movie because I don't want you to know. Because maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. We'll save it for another date. He plays that character again in Kill Bill, and his son, who is played by his actual son, actual James son, yeah. Parks, <laughs> James Parks, who he calls son number one in the movie, he is in Kill Bill uh, with him. 
Uh, he's only in Kill Bill Volume One, I believe. He's at the or is it Volume Two? I forget where. No, he's in Volume One with the bride after the the Blood Spider Bride, yeah, where they he, find he her. He makes an appearance in both. He makes a dual appearances to two characters in the second one. But he plays Earl McGraw in that one, and then he plays Earl McGraw in both of these movies. He's actually in the first part of the movie. He's actually in Planet Terror, and then he's in Death Proof. So he plays Earl McGraw across four movies in, in this cycle. And he is—he's always my favorite part. Like he's such a great scene-stealing so actor. Good. Yeah, you know what I mean. He's so good, and I'm so so tragic that he's no longer with us. He didn't get much fanfare from other movies besides Tarantino's, yeah. and it's but a shame. He should. He's so—he's such a great actor. Like outside, like Kevin Smith was the only one who really picked him up for uh, Red State, and I feel like um, yeah, Red State. And wasn't he also in um, Tusk? Tusk? Yeah, yeah, he was also in Tusk. Oh, Red State's definitely a movie that'll make it to this. Red State's yeah. an amazing movie as well. Kevin Smith was the only one that touched on and <laughs> sensed with Tarantino seeing that he is just this fantastic character actor. Funny thing with you saying, son number one, that his daughter is a character, uh, well, his fictional daughter is a character. In both movies, yeah. In both films, Planet Terror and Death Proof, and she fucking hates him. So yeah. it's but like she's she's only really in I think if we go by sequences, if you see both movies, Death Proof happens first because yeah. then we get the events of uh the other one. I, I don't believe they both happened the same time. Yeah. It may have been happening in the eighteen months or the fourteen months after the events of Death Proof that, that happens in Texas while he's gone up in Tennessee. Yeah. But it's 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 so good because it's that it's that subtle thing, like calling him son number one is like you don't even know if he has a fucking son number two. <laughs> or if it's just definitely a smite towards his daughter, who he well, fucking... he doesn't even call her by his name. He calls no. her by whatever her doctor's name is. He yeah, it's until it's not till the end when the, the son's the, only, the one who says calls her sis. Like we have no idea yeah. until that happens. It's so great, I love it, and and she handles it so fucking perfectly when she walks away and fucking slams the door after having a conversation with him. Like you know, that's all he knows exactly how to get under his daughter's skin. Um, and, yeah, it's it's great as we as we divulge into how much we love and miss uh, Mr. Parks. Why? Well, I guess to me it's a sex thing. The only way I can figure. High velocity impact, twisted metal, busted glass, all four souls taken exactly at the same time. Trouble the way that diabolical degenerate can shoot his goo. Our next reason, top five reasons, our fourth reason. Number four. Zoe Bell's amazing fucking stunt work. It just so happens. I know exactly what I want to do. Oh, really? And what would that be? To me, there's no point in being in America unless you can drive a Detroit muscle car. And I want to drive a Dodge Challenger. <laughs> Fuck me swinging balls out. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess we can talk to Transpo. But does it have to be a Dodge Challenger? Not just that. It has to be a 1970 Dodge Challenger with a 440 engine. Zoe Bell, for those of you who don't know, she made the scene. She's a stunt woman, but she she caught Tarantino's eye. She was the stunt double. She was the stunt double for Uma Thurman and On the Bride in the Kill Bill movies. And in those movies, she actually broke her back. She actually was injured doing a stunt. So this is the movie after that. So he brings her on. As basically herself. She's basically playing herself in this movie, just yeah. a different version of herself. And she's also made an appearance in part of 
The Hateful Eight. She also makes an appearance in that movie as well, acting. And in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, she makes she's oh, the yes, stunt coordinator. Right. <laughs> who is the who wife is married of Kurt to Russell. Kurt Russell. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so good. So, so good. ridiculous. But she is amazing. Now, when she was hired for this, if you haven't seen the movie, in the end of this movie, there is some amazing um, scenes. She does this thing on the front of a car that looks like the Challenger from Vanishing Point. She climbs out of the car on the roof using some belts, gets down, and basically <laughs> basically the female version of getting uh, sucked off by the, the rushing air of a fast car as she spreads her legs holding on. Kurt Russell catches up, and they start having this amazing battle we're going to talk about in a second. But she does all the stunts. She is on the hood of this car going 60, 70 miles an hour with cars crash, smashing at each other, trying to push each other off the road, all kinds of crazy you know, cars turning this and that. She does every single freaking stunt of this. And he originally yeah. hired her and said, I'm going to get you a stunt double, to which she said, no, I'm a stunt woman. I'm doing all yeah. the stunts. Why the fuck wouldn't I do my own stunts? Well, I think he was probably worried about, you know, hey, I, you broke your back the last time. We did exactly. And, yeah. and in his back of his mind, the last time he let a, a non-stunt person do the driving scene, Uma Therma got hurt. So he's probably like, got you know hurt. what? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm not going to do it like this. She is amazing in this film. She's an amazing stunt person. Unfreaking believable. Like, she is tough. She is tough as nails. She's uh, she's amazing. I was blown away the first time I watched it. I remember seeing. It. I've seen it a couple of times, but now going in knowing that we were going to be doing this and you know coming up with reasons why people should watch these films that we that we recommend. I was watching it knowing, having done a little more research about her originally not want or not supposed to be doing all the stunts, and as she's doing them, I'm just watching it, going, "Holy shit!" Like there's no wires. There's no like. Yeah. She really put her life at risk. Yeah. She falls off the hood of that car. She's done. She is dead. Dead. There is no saving her. It'd be, I mean, if she fell off the back, she'd still be really bad and still might be dead. But if she falls off the hood, she's dead. There's nothing that, nothing keeping her alive. And, man, unreal. Let's just hit, hit on the – like of all the shots of her on the car, let's hit on one of the last shots of her on the hood when she does like that fucking almost like cat woman grip to the front of the car and she's got one hand. Yeah. She's facing the road head first and she's got one hand underneath the bumper of the car holding there another hand on the top of the hood bumper and just holding that. That's it. That's fucking it. And they're fucking just roaring like God damn. And just watching and knowing that seeing the fucking wind just fucking gust by her is it's insane to watch and you have to watch it with so much respect for what the fuck she's doing. Well, not just for her, but for also the, uh, the, the driver of Kurt Russell's car, uh, you know, being able to hit the car and just do it just right. That it doesn't knock her, you know, jerk yep. jolt her too much, but it gives it enough of a, of a realistic look. Like, yeah. you know, these two cars are crashing into each other, you know? Yeah. No, like, yeah. Even like, uh, w- there's a few hits, uh, that one hit where, uh, she spins her body completely around on the hood. Like it is just, it's insane oh. with the exception of the amazing insert of a dummy on the hood of the car. If you can catch it, fucking, uh, send us a, uh, DM <laughs> screenshot it, send it to us. Please try to catch this. Send us a screenshot. If you can find that it's a, it's a very quick scene. Um, and during the chaos of it, you'll probably skip over it and not notice it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fantastic when you see it. Cause it's a total 
homage to the use of fucking dummies during the <laughs> well, grindhouse days. Speaking of that, there's a moment when they're when Kurt Russell's is is they're still chasing him. He goes off the road and like there's this dust, and then the like the camera catches back up and he comes back on the as he's coming back on the road, you can totally tell it's a stunt driver. Like the hair is not yeah. as, as good. You can totally tell it's a stunt driver driving. So I don't know if that was intentional. Or if it just happens to be the thing, but you could totally tell that it's not Kurt Russell in the vehicle when he pulls back on the, off the dirt road. I'm going to hit on that same scene for the, the dolly camera work. They almost act intentionally as if the person shooting the, the shot, if Kurt is supposed to pull the car out from the dust pile that he is shooting and go left and come up onto the road and the camera pans back quickly right to catch that he's actually going to come back around. It definitely seemed very intentional. Like that was a thrown in, uh, very grindhouse shot that they would like. Nah, fuck this shit. Like we we don't have time to to uh, to go back to one and reshoot this area. Like there's tire marks. We're gonna have to fuck him. Well, the other thing is, is probably because of all that dust. Like they, lo- you lose the car. Like until it reemerges. When it goes off into that dirt, that dust bowl of uh, it's gone. basically a farm field, like you can't see shit. Like you don't no. see a thing. All of a sudden it just comes back out of the dust, which was kind of cool. Like I, I kind of yeah. like that shot. Like it's really good. I, like, I, I the camera doesn't shot. know where it is. Just like we don't, you know? Yeah. It's like sometimes exactly. when you're watching a football game and they, and they, and the quarterback does a really great, uh, you know, <laughs> fake. And the, and the camera's like, when they throw the ball and the guy's running it, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, like the camera yeah. got fake too. So number five, the fifth reason you should watch this is the muscle car fucking mayhem that happens especially at the end but in yeah. the climax of the first part is pretty fucking awesome all i'm gonna say without giving anything away is we get to see what a car can do to human beings <laughs> that's and the best way i can say it without telling not pretty <laughs> it's not pretty and you get to see tarantino's ability to show uh, to really have fun with it but also to just the brutality of it so but in the second so half, good. we get a full on. Oh, it's it's a twofer, really. It starts off with yeah, with Kurt Russell fucking with these girls while they're playing this ship's mast. Yeah, and he is just chasing them across this countryside, running into them metal on metal, just fucking with them. And then it's weird because the way that section ends, it felt like he was just I don't know. He was just trying to kill the girl on the top or whatever he was trying to do because he's like has fun with it, and it feels like. Either he's just going to leave him alone because another thing's happened, yeah. and then they turn the tables on him. Like when we watched, I was like, "Wait a minute, was he just <laughs> one of my favorite lines?" Yeah, get I ready love. to fly, bitch. <laughs> I love that line. Ready to fly, bitch. I take it as he's never came up against this entity before. He is, and he's genuinely doesn't know what to do anymore. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, when he when the moment happens that they almost all run, they both the two cars kind of go off the road, right? And Zoe's character goes flying off the car and he kind of gets out and he smiling goes, ladies, that was fun. And I won't get into what happens to him after that point where everything's starting to turn. But at that moment, he, it was like, he was done. Like, like he had had his fun with them. He was done. Cause he thought she was done, mm-hmm. which was different than from the first part of the movie that we see and how he, uh, you know, handled that situation. And so it was a little different. It was, you know what I mean? So it kind of even threw me for a little, maybe he had changed the way he wanted to do things. And then obviously the girls turned the table on him. 
So obviously he wasn't prepared for that. And then they start no, chasing him and trying to catch his ass. And we get this great turn from Kurt Russell being this badass killer to <laughs> almost this whiny mama's boy. It was just so stunning. Oh, it was so it fucking good. But oh, my so God. Good. It's hilarious. Do it. Laugh. Do it. I know, Do I it. <laughs> oh, when he pours the fucking first oh, of all, crying. if that ain't hundred proof, why? If, why? <laughs> oh, if that ain't hundred proof whiskey, it ain't fucking. It's not sanitizing anything. <laughs> oh, why? Oh no! Oh! Ah! Oh! 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 Do it! Do it! First of all, A, uh, what I imagine just from the dialogue in the bar scene is at some point during his stunt career, he had a trouble time with booze. That's why he doesn't drink. But he keeps a bottle with him. Yes. Well, I, I. But I think he also does that because he is. Well, he. I don't think he drank that night. I think he may have had a drink problem. But I think he's also very smart because he had his plan. What he had an intention yes. of doing. He can't. And he was going to. Co- that's how he covers his ass. Is yeah, by. He can't have a, a blood alcohol level. Yes. Correct. Yeah. No. I. I totally agree. God, when he fucking his whimpering and whining in that car, goddamn! If you are not just giddy over it, it's the equivalent. Like if finally, if you got a scene where just Jason was just getting punched in the face by like every girl that he fucking murdered from the past like fucking eleven movies up until or ten movies till Jason X. If every final girl got to punch Jason in the face. That's the equivalent of Kurt Russell crying. Is like you're you're watching this fucking evil well, motherfucker just car. whimper. Oh <laughs> god, like, oh, yeah. I broke my car. He's still crying. He's they come up to him. He's um, wailing, wailing, wailing in pain. Yeah. yeah. Like oh, yeah, he does uh, such a this great girl. Job. This girl just flew off a fucking car into a fucking ditch. The ten feet past a ravine, she is gone. You can't even fucking see her. You see that? Did you see her crying? No, because she's a badass motherfucker. And you thought you were a badass, but you fucked with the wrong group of badasses. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I just want to hit on one last piece of our nice uh, muscle car uh, mayhem is that in this film, we get three cars from amazing car films. We get the 1969 Dodge Charger from Bullet in the first half of the film uh, is Stuntman Mike's car. And then we get, of course, uh, the Mustang, 1973, the original same model from uh, the original Gone in 16 Seconds, not that Angelina Jolie bullshit. <laughs> Which is great. They touch on that in the, in uh, the yeah. movie. So fucking good. Which that car is actually uh, 71, and they dressed it as a 73 to match it with the Gone in 60 Seconds uh, model. Um, and then lastly, of course, the creme de la creme. Uh, we get the Challenger from Vanishing Point, which they emphasize hard on. And it's so great uh, just seeing Zoe and them just being so giddy over getting their hands on the Challenger with the white paint job, with the same engine, everything that they need. Like they checked all the boxes in their fantasy car category and they found it in the middle of fucking Lebanon, Tennessee. <laughs> 
being uh, being acquired from uh, Adam Sandler film actor. <laughs> He's so good. Who he plays? I, I can't remember his bum fuck name in this movie. Jasper. His name he is pl- Jasper. 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 Mm-hmm. I knew it was some like real fucking podunk name, like some name out in Riskany Falls. Jasper <laughs> is handled so well. It seems like he just uh, stumbled off the Waterboy set right onto the set, uh, threw on some random fucking uh, coveralls and played a, 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 the same character. Uh, it was like the cousin of his character from fucking from uh, Waterboy. And of those cars, did you know that Well, the fans who haven't seen, or have seen this yet, that the Chevy Nova that he drives in the first half of the movie is the only car that has the skull and lightning bolts on it after something happens. When we get the Challenger in this, or not the Challenger, yeah. the Charger in the, the Charger second half, second half. He, there's, it, it's a black car, but there is no skull yep. on it. And here's a re- I forgot to mention this when we were talking about uh, Kurt Russell, but when they're back at the Chili Bar in the first half of the movie in Austin, Texas, hanging just to the right above Quentin Tarantino's person personal jukebox that they use that he actually had specially shipped from his home in California to the set in to that place in Austin, Texas, Jack Burton's tank top, the Japanese rising sun and samurai from big trouble, little China is yep, hanging there. next to it. How cool is that? And I, so after doing, good. doing the, um, you know, the behind the scenes, you know, checking this out, you know, being prepared for this <laughs> to talk about this. When I was watching the other night, I was like, Oh my God, they're fucking, it's like, you're not paying attention to it. Like, it's just, I love those little moments of, a poppy knows it, folks. That muscle car, the stuff at the end is amazing. Oh, and they destroy these so two cars. Good. Like, like yeah. I, I <laughs> don't know how many of these cars they had to use, but they fuck all of them. Yeah, it vanishes. Oh it, my that god, that car vanishes. Like, there's <laughs> yeah. a scene towards the end where they're both driving down this highway, and you can just see like the right quarter pan, front quarter panel of the Challenger of the. Uh, yeah, the Challenger is completely ripped. It looks like it was in a demolition derby. Like, that's what they do. They're yeah. playing demolition oh, yeah. derby the entire island. It feels like 20 minutes of the end of the movie. And it's just, it's so great. It's so amazing. So many great moments in the movie. And just uh, one last part of the mayhem uh, portion I'll just throw in there is uh, it was kind of almost like Tarantino's way of subtly hinting towards him wanting John from Wolf Creek to be stuntman Mike. Is how they, why how Zoe yells out the, the car window at him. Watch out for the sign, and he drives through the drive-through sign of uh, <laughs> Wolf Creek. And what the? It was like a rant. It was like B movie. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, some random fucking like it, it made no fucking sense. Like it's like okay, who's taking their fucking kids to go see the dusk showing of a PG movie that then goes into fucking an Australian brutal horror movie afterwards. <laughs> That, like, this is the weirdest double feature billing that I've ever fucking seen. It's great. You haven't fucking got that now from us talking for God knows how fucking long. Yeah, so there's there's our five reasons you need to watch this movie. Number one, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. Number two, it stars an amazingly strong cast of female characters. And they are the stars of the entire movie. Number three, Kurt fucking Russell as an amazing villain. His acting in this is unreal. Four, Zoe Bell and her amazing fucking stunt work. Just watching the 20 minutes of her doing that alone, it, it makes you breathless once you realize that she's doing it all for herself and the complete danger she's put herself into yeah. doing this. Because it, it leads to number five, which is the muscle car mayhem. In the first half, you get to see 
we get to, we don't get to see as much as we do in the second half. But in the first half, you can yeah. see what a car can do to human beings. And in the second half, you get to watch an unreal white knuckle freaking back and forth demolition derby between two amazing cars. Yeah. It, it really is like the first uh, the first fifty five minutes of this film is uh is Tarantino's take on a slasher film. Yes, and the second half is Tarantino's take on a women's revenge exploitation film, and his love of car movies. Yeah, uh, with both having little hints towards different types of exploitation films, even with the dialogue like uh, banter uh, between the fantastic fucking cast in this movie oh. of them. Just talking about everything. Um, yeah, you even, but yeah, it, I mean, great women dialogue, but you don't normally oh get a God. lot of movies that is so you know, good. Yeah, feel contrived. The the subtle subtle hints and stabs that they make at one another. Uh, Butterfly stabbing at Jungle Julia. It does a great job of showing sometimes the cattiness that women can have between each other, but yet also the yeah. strength that they have together as well. It's it's fucking fantastic, amazing. It is. It's fantastic because you know it's a rarity. We get this regularly in uh, male-led cinema, in male-fronted uh, cast. Reservoir Dogs, yeah, a ton. Every fucking, every male uh, ensemble cast, we get this. Every fucking uh, male war movie, we get these characters showing bonding through banter. And now we get it portrayed in such a great way, Um through these amazing actresses in this film and written amazingly uh, by Tarantino. Let me get this straight. You're not fucking him. Mm -mm. You're not sucking him. Mm -mm. You're not giving him any tongue, but Daryl Hannah's stand-in is. Okay, can we just take my sex life off the table? Actually, uh, it was Cecil's sex life that was on the table and your lack of one. <laughs> ah! Oh. Ah! Ah! Oh. Ah! Fuck both of you and your little high five. Well, that will wrap up why we believe you should watch this movie. Now, before we send you on your merry way to watch this, we have decided to come up with a couple of a couple of lists. We enjoy doing lists. You may not enjoy doing lists. Tough fucking shit. It's our podcast, not yours. It's time to make some lists. We've decided to come up with two top five lists that you can then use as a gauge to go see different more movies or remind you of movies that maybe you haven't seen. Our first list is the top five must-watch Tarantino movies. Now, I will let Matt go first. I will go first on the next list. So, Matt, what are your top five starting at five, working your way up to number one of Tarantino's must-watch movies? All right. Well, I'm going to start. My number five is Hateful Eight because, first of all, I'm fascinated with uh, the Hateful Eight for what Tarantino went to the table with the idea of doing. Tarantino went to the table fascinated with the film the thing and wanted to know more about it and understand it more in the process of it and that was the original like start of what created this film it's fantastic and the fact that he based all of this over his obsession with the thing and wanting to just know more all the way down to the fucking soundtrack it's one of my favorite tarantino films uh number four is inglorious bastard fantastic fucking film i would say next to once upon a time hollywood which is my third this is the best um tarantino retake on history of him <laughs> taking his revisionist back, history yeah him taking back what happened and saying you know what fuck you hitler and the fucking ass fuck you nazi fucks and of course uh, as i already said number three 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is so fucking good. I could watch that motherfucking film every goddamn day. It is just his complete homage to Hollywood and him growing up in California. It It's almost as if you are taken back and you're sitting side by side in a car with Tarantino as a kid driving through Hollywood and just like thinking about like what he was thinking back then driving through seeing golden age of Hollywood down the Hollywood Boulevard, seeing uh, the hippie movement coming in and seeing them being rejected by the Hollywood crew that were like fucking dirty hippies, like coming in and buying, like living around us. We're fucking buying property. Oh yeah. Like, like uh, fucking uh, Rick Dalton says, Oh, you know, they, they say, uh, you know, having a piece of property here it, it's just that it, you don't rent anymore you gotta buy <laughs> when he's stuttering um and telling cliff how that's like the next thing um but they fucking hate they hate these hippies um it's so fucking good and it does it takes you back to what brought him into cinema like i i feel like like that is just his love story to him starting his career and going from working in a fucking vhs fucking video store to being one of the greatest fucking directors of all time uh number two his first fucking feature film reservoir dogs fantastic perfect film and lastly i'll, I'll have you guess number one i'm gonna say pulp fiction yeah that's an easy take pulp fiction <laughs> yeah it's his his chase de resistance yeah, it's his Palm de Or winner. It's fantastic. Uh, there is not a fucking single thing that you could ever... None of these... There's not a single thing about the list of five movies that I could tell you right now. With the exception of, I will say, with Hateful Eight, Channing Tatum's character beating, being the leader of the gang was a disappointment. The only thing, only complaint out of the list of five that I just said, my only complaint is Hateful Eight... Channing Tatum beating the leader of the gang and not Jennifer Jason Lee being the leader of the gang well, uh, was again, my only he's, disappointment. He's her brother, and you got to remember where you're back in the 17, 1800s, women aren't leading yeah. shit. Just, you know, I mean, that was just again, unfortunately the facts. That's, again, you know. with him doing his revisionist history, I wanted, I, when, I remember when I first seen it in theaters, I wanted him to just push it just a little bit further uh, into that almost like fuck you point. Where he just, like, because we all knew ahead of the release, like, holy fuck, Channing Tatum's cast in a fucking Tarantino film. Like, nobody fucking seen that coming. Like, uh, same I, thing I didn't when, mind him. I thought he was pretty good, to be honest. No, I, I, thought, I, he, mind I him. thought he was great. I, uh, I thought he was fantastic, especially when his head gets blown off. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish with The Amazing Pulp Fiction. It is a fucking flawless film. It is Probably, if not my first favorite, it probably is, yeah. My first favorite uh, Travolta film, next to number two being Blowout. It's probably my first or second favorite, like, toss-up between fucking Die Hard and Pulp Fiction for Bruce Willis. Like, these amazing actors that fucking existed for so long in cinema. Um, uh, in my opinion, just, it's what launched Samuel L. Jackson, this movie. And, yeah, that movie launched him. Like, it, like, it, it put him, it, it, like, he was an amazing actor, but this, this launched him. Yeah. This is a fucking rocket. This was, it was. Uh, he delivered enough fucking uh, lines, literally fuck lines, <laughs> to put him into the stratosphere. Until Jonah Hill finally came in and was able to topple him uh, with uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. I don't think it was until after that that he was able to beat him for the most uh, cursing on film. 
So that's my top five uh, for Tarantino uh, watch in order. Start with Hateful Eight, <laughs> work your way to Pulp Fiction. Yeah, well, we have three similar movies, but not uh, in the same order quite. For me, the fifth uh, one you must watch is Django Unchained. It is an amazing, basically revisionist history of the South and slavery. Uh, the amazing Christoph Waltz, the Jamie Foxx is unbelievable in this movie. And as much as I love Christoph Waltz, Mr. Leonardo DiCaprio was robbed of Best Supporting Actor as he plays one of the greatest villains ever put on screen. One hundred percent robbed. He's amazing in this black exploitation movie that is also a western. It is unreal. Jamie Foxx. I mean, the whole the movie's amazing. I absolutely love Django Unchained. It is great. It's violent. It's brutal. Speaking of Samuel Jackson, him playing. The Uncle Tom type uh, house black in in and in his words, he wanted to be the most hated character in black cinema. He wanted black people to hate him so much. He is unbelievable in his role. Uh, it's it's such a great movie. I mean, I love it. Uh, God, I mean, even great moments like from Don Johnson and all these other people. Joan Hill's in it. There's there's great comedy. There's great moments in it. Um, Carrie Washington as Broomhilda. Oh. It's just a fantastic uh, Western movie. I, I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. My number four is his first movie, Reservoir Dogs. I mean, Reservoir Dogs. I mean, what more can you say? It's it's not many people get to have putting out a movie, your first movie being a Reservoir Dogs. It's it's a classic. I mean, it's a classic. Everyone has who's done a crime movie since has tried to somehow either copy Reservoir Dogs or copy Pulp Fiction. I mean, they're the standard bearers. I mean, Quentin Tarantino helped usher in an amazing era of cinema in the 90s, uh, especially if you're a crime uh, movie fan. You will not hear Reservoir Dogs on this podcast, because if you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs at this point, fuck. <laughs> yeah, All right. Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. Where movie. the fuck have you been? <laughs> All right. like, this, uh, I think I watched Reservoir movie. Dogs for the first time when I was like fucking 12. Like, come on. It's so, it's so amazingly good. Unbelievably good. Number three for me is Inglorious Bastards. I love Inglorious Bastards, and I was toss up for putting it up higher. I love yeah. Inglorious Bastards. It is when we talk about Death Proof. What Quentin Tarantino does is he takes um, genres and movies and that he loved, and then he almost makes them better than what they originally were. This is way better than The Dirty Dozen. I know some people will say that's blasphemous, but Inglorious Bastards is unreal. Brad Pitt, unfucking believable. The whole cast and crew it's amazing and christoph waltz talk about one of the best villains ever hans landa is quentin tarantino's favorite character he's ever written is hans landa that opening milk scene in this movie holy shit unbelievable if you haven't seen the glorious bastards which has been out 11 years now what seriously what's wrong with some people what are you watching the kardashians yeah. <laughs> come on get yeah. your heads out of your ass yeah, watch watch something that that will yeah. make you more oh. aware of the cinema and of fucking culture and hi- oh. even history. You're getting a loose selling of fucking history. I mean, basically, my my one so far have been a, a great western slash black quotation movie, uh, a great crime film. This is a great uh, war slash you know like a like a dirty dozens type. And number two is his take on samurai slash kung fu movies, Kill Bill. Kill Bill is wow. Unbelievable. As our friend from another podcast, Cajun Podcast, would say, chef's kiss to Kill Bill. Kill Bill yeah. is amazing. The only thing I am disappointed about Kill Bill for is that they broke it into two things and that we never got what was promised, which was the whole bloody affair. It's my only disappointment is not seeing this whole movie in one long, glorious three-hour film. Kill Bill 
from start to finish is spectacular, phenomenal. The acting in it is unreal. Uma Thurman is she's she's brilliant in this movie. And the fact that they're talking about a possible next movie for him is Kill Bill Three. I'm already in line. I'm already in fucking line. Let's do this, Tarantino. Yeah. Get on it. Let's make Kill Bill fucking three. And then, of yeah. course, my number one is the same as yours. It's Pulp Fiction. Pulp yeah. Fiction changed my life. I, I became a it. huge. I mean, I liked the film before this, but Pulp Fiction is what I was like, oh, this is what movies should be. Pulp Fiction is one of the greatest movies of all time. All time. It, in my opinion, I'm sorry, it's top five. It is one of those movies that changed cinema sense. And unfortunately, so many people tried to be like it that it kind of ruined 90 cinema towards the end of 2000. And that's why we, now we have we have good movies coming out, but we don't get many Pulp Fictions anymore. And it'll I'll be stunned if anyone makes a Pulp Fiction ever again. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful to see something as amazing as Pulp Fiction. But to me, Pulp Fiction will always be one of the greatest movies ever made. It will not be in this podcast because, again, if you haven't seen Pulp no. Fiction, you stop, listening to our Pulp, uh, yeah, you stop listening to this yeah. podcast and you, you, you stumbled upon the you, wrong thing. You've been <laughs> sleeping for too long. <laughs> yeah. You, if you're for, you don't want to get into death proof, you want to start off with his stuff. So yeah. for me, it's Django, it's Reservoir Dogs, Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill, Pulp Fiction, my top five must watch Tarantino movies. Now you'll notice we've left out death proof. Obviously, we've recommended this. So we should, it won't be in lists. From this point on, anything you hear from us, from our podcast, you'll never hear the movies we just spent an hour plus telling you to watch. We're going to tell you some other ones that if you like this, it's almost like that suggestion. Did you like this? Well, people who bought this also like this. So we're going to try to give you some yeah. other movies to pop you <laughs> like if you like this. Which will lead us to our second one. So usually we're going to give you a top five movie list that you should see. And now a top five movies of one of our actors. And our actor we picked today is, of course, the great Kurt Russell. And these are my five movies that I think you must watch of Kurt Russell's. Number five, we actually talked about it. His shirt is hanging by the jukebox. It's Big Trouble in Little China. Can't even speak. That's how much I like the movie. <laughs> Kurt Russell in his most glorious uh, douchebag uh, comedy role ever. I love <laughs> yeah. him as so Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China. And it's an amazing movie it, because it's, it's also, probably one of the most underrated John Carpenter movies. I was going to say, it's a John Carpenter movie that most people wouldn't, didn't know was a John Carpenter movie. Because no. yeah, while exactly. it, has some, it has some spiritual uh, elements to it. It has nothing to do with what's, you know, a lot of the horror genre that John Carpenter oh, yeah. is known for. It's an amazing freaking movie. That leads me to number four, which Matt actually had in his movies above us uh, for Tarantino, but The Hateful Eight. His role in The Hateful Eight is John the Hangman is freaking unbelievable. Yeah. He is. He kills oh, He's big and boisterous and over the top and just uh, all cock of the wood and tough guy. Got a big old fucking mustache, and he's got the fucking yeah, hair. So oh, good. He's, he's amazing in this. I'm going to quickly ask you a fun fact about uh, the Hateful Eight uh, and about his character in that. Did you know that the guitar that he smashes in the Hateful Eight that uh, Jennifer plays, that that was – so when she was filming the scene, playing the guitar and singing mm -hmm. fantastically, and he comes over and grabs it and smashes that guitar. He didn't know that they didn't switch to the prop yet. And he smashed the fucking antique guitar. So her reaction when her jaw is wide open, it's because That's Kurt awesome. is destroying the fucking actual fucking antique 
guitar and he did not realize oh, that man. he was doing it until as you see in that film it's the take <laughs> that they used <laughs> is yeah it's fucking priceless uh obviously if you're listening to this and you get a chance to go and either watch that for the first time or watch it again take a look at her fucking reaction because <laughs> you, you see it in her fucking face that she's like oh fuck he just broke the wrong fucking guitar well it was a great take because <laughs> they kept it and it was amazing so good that was perfect now for number three uh it's the only one in my list where he doesn't have some sort of facial hair or hair down to his shoulders it's miracle i one am a huge fan of sports wow. and hockey i love him as the coach i love this movie about the 1980 olympic hockey team beating the russians he plays this coach so amazing. I coach basketball. I have used some of the lines in this from him about the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back. And when kids aren't paying attention and he makes him keep going again and again, he is an amazing, he plays this coach amazingly, Herb Brooks. And it's, it's a phenomenal freaking movie as for a sports movie. Obviously, if you don't know the story, you should know the story of miracle of how the eighties, uh, college hockey, bunch of college kids on the U S uh, S Olympic team beat this unstoppable juggernaut of the Russian national team in 1980 in Lake Placid. And he does an amazing job as the coach says, And I love it. It's one of my favorite movies to watch when he's in number two, I'll be a Huckleberry. Tombstone. I love him and <laughs> Tombstone. God damn, do I love me some Tombstone. I love him and Val Kilmer in it together. Oh, he plays so good. He he's a more straightforward upfront version of himself in Hateful Eight. Not as not as cock of the wood, but man, does he play a great wide herb. He is fantastic. He's my favorite yeah, wide herb. So good. He's my favorite wide herb, and I love yeah. Tombstone. Oh, best one. Oh, love Tombstone. And then that'll lead me to number one. And this is my favorite Kurt Russell movie of all time. I, it's my favorite John Carpenter movie. I absolutely love this movie, and I've heard that they're remaking it, and I'm not happy or excited about it at all. But Escape from New York. I love Escape from New York. I watched it when I was a kid. Wait, they're fucking remaking I've heard it? That that's, that's in talks. Yes, I've heard Oh, it. Jesus yep. fucking Christ. Exactly. There's no one else who is Snake Plissken but fucking Kurt Russell. No. He is Snake Plissken. He was... Snake Plissken was the first person that got me into Kurt Russell. I loved Escape from New York. It used to be on HBO, and it would be on a channel here in New York called WPIX that we would get here in Syracuse. It was Channel 11 out of New York City. And a lot of times in the afternoon, especially in the 80s, the the weekend movie, at least once a month, Escape from New York would be on there, and I would watch it every time. I love Escape from New York. So those are my five. Big Trouble in Little China, The Hateful Eight, Miracle, Tombstone, and Escape from New York. And now, Matt, I pass it to you. Before I uh, dive into mine, how do you feel about Escape from L.A.? I fucking hate Escape from L.A. Escape from L.A. is garbage. <laughs> it's fucking horrific. And the sad thing is I was excited uh, to go see it when it came out in the theaters back in the 90s, thinking, well, it's got to be this. I mean, he's playing Snake Plissken. It's going to be as good as Escape from New York. Yeah. Now, if Tarantino had directed Escape from L.A., we would have got a whole different movie, and it would probably have been amazing. But, yeah. Oh, I fucking hate escape from la <laughs> as far as i'm concerned when he walks away ripping up the tape at the end of escape from new york done nate Pliskin has uh, he's done he moves up goes somewhere else he is not going to la and fucking around out there fucking hate escape from la do not oh, watch yeah. that movie all right i never me- recommend Don't you watch, do not it. watch that movie. We, we, <laughs> yeah we are we that's our one non-recommendation all right so yeah my list starting at number five this is mr wyatt Earp. In Tombstone, fucking fantastic film. I remember watching it back in the day. 
uh, with my dad. It was probably one of the like first real like well, it's not it's not a traditional western, but a '90s western that I was introduced to that started me down the road of of enjoying and loving western films. My number four, of course, is a lot of ours match up here. Uh, my number four is Big Trouble in Little China. Fucking great That's movie, so very underrated. John uh, Car- Carpenter film that uh, I feel like a lot of people that don't fucking know John Carpenter don't realize uh, that it's him. Just with like, I'm just saying like, there could be some foreshadowing of it being on this podcast as well. Exactly. It's just kind of like a lot of people don't realize Lost Boys is Joel Schumacher yeah, or exactly. Tigerland is Joel Schumacher. Like those are you know fantastic films uh, that like you almost just kind of just don't even. They're so good. You or like um, Memento with Christopher Nolan. Yeah, like you, you just they're like such good films. You kind of don't even think about who made them because they're so fucking great. My number three is fucking Bone Tomahawk. Oh, so good fantastic too. fucking western. One of my favorite modern day western films. I don't want to dive too much into it because we might hit it maybe eventually. <laughs> um, but it's a fucking fantastic modern day western. If you get a chance to watch it. Kurt Russell has even slightly more impressive mustache than yeah. Hateful Eight. I feel like he might have filmed these in chronological order, one way or the they other. They were pretty close together, um, actually. They're, they're very close because that mustache was well-groomed for both films. You could do with, you know, um, someone could sit home and watch a trilogy of Kurt Russell in Westerns, watch uh, Tombstone, yeah. Hateful Eight, and Bone Tomahawk, and, <laughs> and Bone be Tomahawk. completely satisfied with their afternoon. Oh, yeah. It's like the progression of a mustache. It's <laughs> it really the, is. the mustache, tri- it really it's the mustache is. trilogy. <laughs> We're coining that now. All right. Uh, number uh, number two, Escape from New York. Fucking Snake Plissken. Plissken. Most badass fucking motherfucker. I idolized him so much. I was just like, ah. If a film can make you want to lose an eye and have an eye patch. I was going to say the same thing. great film. I've never, <laughs> like, anytime I was like, you know, I never, I'm not getting a glass eye for losing an eye. I'm getting a fucking eye patch. <laughs> you right now, I'm getting the fucking eye patch. It's happening. It's, oh, yeah. It's so good. And, of course, number one, The Thing. It was hard to keep that uh, off my feature, list. Creature uh, feature. Yeah. It, it, it's a difficult one to keep off there. Easily, I would I would probably say it's the best creature feature of all time. And I know that's extremely debatable. But the fucking everything. Kurt Russell's acting in this. Everything about this fucking film is perfect. The fucking score. All of the actors. Again, this is a 100% male cast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but, but comparing fucking uh, Death Proof to The Thing. We have, you know, the conflict between males secluded. It is so fucking good and portrayed so well by such a strong character with him. Um, and uh, a fantastic scene when you first get to meet Kurt Russell in the beginning of the thing that couldn't more perfectly parlay into the feeling of 2020 is when he is playing chess against the computer and he fucking loses. And he calls the computer a cheating bitch and then proceeds to pour his fucking whiskey into the fucking computer and destroy it. If that ain't fucking what's exactly going on to us right now in 2020 with just repeatedly having one fucking bad thing happen after another and nothing seems to just be getting better at all. It just seems to kind of be just dragging and trudging along, hopefully until uh, possibly, you know, we can make some changes here. The thing is fucking fantastic. It's a flawless fucking movie. I could watch it 
every fucking night and enjoy it every fucking night. Some of the best um, special effects work I've ever seen. It's just, it's flawless. So yeah, it was hard. I didn't want to put it on my list because of it being such a, a big Kurt Russell film, but it was hard not to just be like, okay, this is Kurt Russell's number one yeah. right here in my opinion. I mean, this, he's got a lot of great movies that we left off, like obviously Tango and Cash, some other ones, but yeah, it's, oh, it's, yeah that was, that, there's a, there's a couple of oh, there's that, tough ones, you know, they're tough to, there was a very big internal battle. Yeah. Uh, with me for not putting Tangle and Cash. <laughs> it's, cr- it's a great I, I movie. It's so good. I yeah. Uh, I mean, there's he's got a lot of them. Uh, you know, there's uh, what's the one where he's uh, the truck driver, like uh, his his wife and him get ki- uh, kidnapped uh, while they're driving oh, or something uh, like that. There's, I can't think of the name right now, but Maximum Overdrive. Uh, I will think about it later. It doesn't matter. No, no, yeah. no. Watch this or die. And that will do it for this week's installment. We'd like to thank you again for hanging out with us and letting us gush all over you about this movie. Now, we hope you will enjoy it as much as we have. So please let us know what you thought of this movie by reaching out to us on our social media platform. Now, we can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watch This or Die. Feel free to DM us your thoughts on this week's movie, give us your own top five list, tell us what you did or didn't like about the show, or even suggest some movies to us. You can also email us at WatchThisOrDiePodcast at gmail.com. Now, we hope you will join us again next week for our next movie recommendation. And as always... I'm Scott Crowshire. And I'm Apple Plant. Until next time, watch this or die.